everyone and welcome back to HOA, It's a True Story. Today we are talking about construction litigation with Steve Weil and Chad Thomas. Steve is a founder and partner at Birding and Wild and Chad Thomas is the managing partner of Birding and Wild Law Firm. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us today and welcome to HOA, It's a True Story. Thanks, Regan. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, great to see you again. Thank you. Also joining our conversation is Russell Brown, our Vice President of East Phoenix Sacramento ITD Group. So I want to kind of bring in the idea today of two different perspectives, specifically the legal perspectives when an HOA is getting ready to consider construction defect litigation and having both their general counsel, who is usually you know, their father figure through the, <laughs> the legal means and methods of their HOA, and then the litigating attorney and why you guys are not just like a general practitioner doctor, right? There's always a different perspective. Steve, how long has your firm been representing HOAs? Since our founding, Reagan, in 1988. And back then, uh, there were very, very few lawyers who didn't do both the day-to-day -day operation that you call general counsel. And then litigation of all sorts, construction defect litigation or ceasing on So did you always represent both general counsel work and litigation back then as well? Personally, I did, because it wasn't really until Davis Sterling, the Davis Sterling Act got so complicated and so burdensome that people really started to specialize. The firm had a need for that, so I moved over to the general counsel side. Uh, Chad, when did you join the firm? So I joined, joined the firm right Prior to that, I had been with a defense firm uh, representing developers, general contractors, and subcontractors. And uh, I'd had several cases against Birding Wild. Uh, it was a firm that I knew and respected. And as a consequence, I wanted to make the transition. It was a logical, logical thing. So was construction always your passion, even before you became a lawyer? Yeah, it, it was. It's interesting that I grew up in a family uh, where my mom owns a small uh, property management company. And my brothers and I were the workforce, we were the labor for her at a young age. We started off in fun. We started off on pulling weeds and painting fences, and then the work evolved uh, more toward painting and some small finished carpentry, and we just sort of got better and better at it, and so I've always uh, enjoyed construction, working with my hands, uh, property management was just sort of something that we were involved in from a young age, so it was kind of a logical fit to gravitate toward this practice. And you said, I'm not going to keep doing this back-breaking labor, I'm going to go to law school. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny, when you're doing the labor, you want to sit behind a desk. When you're sitting behind a desk, all you want to do is go do the labor. That's true. That's not that true. So, Steve, what are the typical reasons an HOA would seek out general counsel? Is it typically the same old problems with parking pets and, and people, or are there usually bigger issues that trigger that initial call? Well, in a COVID environment where people are not leaving their homes and they're bumping into each other, we're definitely getting a lot of neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor, uh, type disputes and parking, noise, smoking, um, the law is a lot more complicated than even 10 years ago. Fair housing issues, discrimination issues, the explosion of uh, legislation that has required uh, lawyers, managers, directors to really step up quickly to deal with some complex issues like the recent um, change to the leasing rules. Last year we had a change to the balcony inspection requirements and to voting election rules. So I would say that uh, in the last 10 years or so, the things that prompt clients to call are uh, they've heard about new, le new legislation online or from training classes or the like, and uh, 
also because their people are just more contentious than they used to be. Yeah, it seems to me that when we come across a self-managed style board, they often are completely outdated. They don't know any of the current legislative laws. And does that seem to be true to you, or is that just random ones that we've encountered? Well, some older bylaws are great, and some are not great. So to some degree, it really depends on the lawyer or the developer who drafted the initial documents. But the real problem is that Davis Sterling just keeps trumping the provisions of the association's bylaws and CCRs. And so if you're not having quality management or really up to date, then uh, you're out of date. And uh, that can create some conflicts with homeowners because with a couple of keystrokes, everybody claims to be an HOA expert. And that could be a problem for clients. <laughs> Yeah, the internet doesn't lie. <laughs> so Chad, then typically what's the first sign that an HOA is having construction defect type problems? They've already contacted their general counsel for their other issues, but how do they make that first call to you? What's the, the first sign of a problem? Yeah, sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes there are windows that leak or a roof that leaks or plumbing uh, that's problematic and is leaking. Uh, other times it's more subtle. Uh, you know, there'll be signs that the building is not managing water well. Uh, we see efflorescence, which is the white chalky substance on the exterior of stucco surfaces. And sometimes that's a sign uh, that the building is just not allowing the water to evacuate uh, where it should. And so there are subtle signs sometimes, and oftentimes there are more overt signs. But, but typically what happens in, in when we receive calls is when communities are forced to respond to make repairs that are not contemplated by their budgets. I think that's the first red flag. Uh, you know, you now have three or four or five roof leaks that you've had to repair, and that's in no way contemplated by the budget. And that's a red flag oftentimes to property managers or community managers, uh, as well as general counsel, that there might be uh, something that's more than normal maintenance, uh, something that might be well, then how can you tell the difference between if it's just a warranty call back to the developer or if it's actually a real, you know, concern that they need to be looking at and talking to a lawyer about? Yeah, so when we go out, we try to identify at first, is this a one-off problem or a systemic problem? If it's a one-off problem, oftentimes you can initiate the warranty process with the builder. Come back, uh, they'll come back and make very specific repairs. So we're trying to determine, one, is it one-off or systemic? Two, how pervasive is the problem? Uh, three, what's really truly wrong? How do we fix it? What's it going to cost? And once you kind of determine that, it'll dictate your strategy relative to approaching the builder informally or alternatively uh, making a formal call. Chad, that's true, and it's always been true when we have a manifestation of a problem, you know, efflorescence or a leak dry rot, you know, that triangular stain, you know, on a window. Um, but the balcony bill has changed that a little bit, right? Yeah, I think the, the, the balcony bill has now put the obligation on associations to go affirmatively investigate these elements to ensure that they're performing as intended. Uh, so it's really put the onus squarely on the association and community managers to go out and affirmatively determine uh, whether these components are performing or not. And it's an interesting change, though. You know, historically, we've reacted to, you know, as I say, a manifestation of problems, whatever complaints, whatever it is. And now the law actually encourages the board to go look for problems. Even yeah. They want to for us to Pro proactive for the first time instead of reactive. Yeah, right. So it's an interesting dynamic in terms of advising our clients uh, when they are concerned about if do we have a problem, and if we do, how are we going to address it? Yeah, and I don't want to jump ahead, but there's actually another overlay here, 
that's SB 800 of Title VII. Uh, a lot of the time limitations in Title VII are now very short, so a community actually has to or, or should get out and investigate a little sooner uh, than they otherwise would to ensure that they can bring a claim prior to the expiration of it under the uh, Well, you kind of brought something up that I was going to ask you about later, but let's go ahead and touch on it now. Can you kind of give me what's the difference between SB 800 and Davis Sterling? Well, SB 800 is a series of statutes in the civil code, as you know, that basically creates a mediation process, which is required prior to an association initiating an arbitration or litigation. Davis-Sterling is more directed to day-to-day -day operations. Um, it has some provisions concerning construction defect or CD claims of litigation, but those primarily relate to disclosures uh, and don't really dictate very much about the prosecution of a CD claim or its investigation. So that alone is a good reason why a board might be talking to you first about Davis Sterling type situations and then say, hey, but we're having this problem with our building, which is almost always initiated by water being introduced to the building in some manner um, through plumbing or throughout the exterior. Yeah, and I think for the general counsel lawyer, it's important not to be an alarmist and to scare a client uh, into thinking, you know, that a problem may be huge. It's important to be prudent and careful and walk the client step by step through, you know, is there an issue? Will the developer step up? Is it more of a product issue where you can call a manufacturer as opposed to a construction issue, which might be a little bit different? And then, you know, the general counsel dynamics um, also come up a lot sooner than they used to because, as Chad says, the statute of limitations uh, now are much shorter. Um, and so frequently the developer may be continuing to have a position on the board. And so there are a host of conflict and communication issues and managing the director's expectations and the manager's expectations in the general counsel role. And there's quite a lot of that nowadays. So then, Steve, is there ever an, an opportunity where you might advise a HOA to not go into construction defect? Sure. We can say this in a lot of complicated way, Trinigan, but a really simple way of looking at it is this. If you've done a due diligence investigation and the cost to repair the problem that you've identified is something that can be afforded by your members in the short term and the medium term uh, before more damage results uh, by a special assessment or perhaps a bank loan or a, you know, a, a not too high increase in regular assessments, then we say to the client, you're better off. You don't have to deal with lawyers for the next year, 15 months, whatever it is, 24 months, depending. Um, and all of the stuff about uh, claims, um, you don't need to deal with. You need to self-finance, but at the end of the day, that may be a better solution. The challenging issue is when the cost of repair is just exponentially higher, you know, depending on the demographics. In some community, a $5,000 per unit special assessment, people, that's doable. And that's probably a better play than you know, pursuing a litigation. Um, whereas if it's a $25,000 special assessment, then obviously that would be more difficult to consider pursuing. Good point. Chad, what are the challenges an HOA will face by pursuing it? Um, because I know sometimes that kind of has that daunting feel of, God, two years of lawyers and construction going on around us, and, you know, 
what are they what are they really afraid of or what might they face that kind of bothers them about the whole process? Well, I think the first thing is they're concerned about disclosures. Um, they're concerned that litigation is going to lead to disclosures that will chill sales and refinancing. I think that's probably the number one concern that they express. And uh, it's a bit of a misnomer. Uh, you know, it is not the litigation or the claim that creates the disclosure obligation. It's the existence of the defects, right? So one way or another, that community, if those defects are unmitigated, is going to have to disclose the existence of the defects. And from my perspective, it's better to have a plan to deal with those defects. And your plan can be either we're going to rely upon the members and we're going to pass a special assessment or an increased regular assessment, so we're going to pay a loan to fund those defects. Or alternatively, uh, you can go after the builder and try to get money from the builder to effectuate necessary repairs. So, the, so individuals might be concerned that it's going to devalue their property and they wouldn't be able to sell it for the value they think it's worth. Or, or it's going to be a red flag preventing, you know, scaring off buyers or re refinancing. Somehow depreciating their property. Right. I, I think that is the concern in the short term. But again, the existence of defects is going to depress market value, not the existence of the plan to cure the defects. So is that the biggest myth that surrounds construction defect or is it something else? Yeah, I, th I think that is a myth. I think there are other myths, you know, like for instance, it's not worth the exercise. You will never get the builder to respond and or offer repairs or pay money. And, and I think we all know, sitting in this room, that that's just not true. Uh, we've had a lot of success pushing these builders to either make repairs or alternatively give the association money so the association can effectuate necessary repairs. So that's that's sort of another, another myth. Russell, when you're on a destructive testing or intrusive investigation, whether it's the DEC 326 that Steve had mentioned or a litigation support, what is the feedback you typically get from the homeowners? Are they happy you're out there or do they just wish you'd get the hell out? <laughs> it's really a mixed bag, to be honest. There's people who feel more comfortable and are able to digest the information from the original meetings with the attorneys to where they understand why this is a necessary evil to get the outcome that's going to be. So you think it's a communication? Sometimes. There are times where there's really nothing that you're going to be able to do or say that is going to control this person to feel, let's say, pleased that we're cutting open their building and particularly their unit. It's it's really a mixed bag. At the higher level, the communication always seems to go much uh, better, especially on the DTs when the liaisons are on site. If you have a very strong liaison that can communicate clearly about what to expect, and then a contractor that can deliver what was expressed to the homeowner, then it seems to be the best uh, combination there. Or if they're one of the ones experiencing problems. Then they well, then they're relieved, yeah. yes. But I do think that uh, that's a good point about communication. You know, the directors are the ones who are familiar with the expert reports, they've met the lawyers, maybe they've participated in the mediation. So they're marinated in the issue. But with uh, homeowners, um, particularly non-resident owners, they only read you know, letters from time to time. In our firm, we use um, our website, and we have a running um, tabulation of all the important communications in the case, and the status reports, and that. So anybody can access them, but surprisingly, not that many people do. Yeah, and here we are in Silicon Valley, and they don't use the portals. <clears throat> yeah, that's right. And so, so people, I think, really have a misunderstanding. They make assumptions, you know, that aren't true um, about the case. I think it's really important for a board to not just regularly communicate, but to make promises 
and then to keep those promises. They may not be big all the time, they can be small, but uh, a good example in the destructive testing, the DT context is if you're sending contractors out there to drill, drill holes and take out sheetrock, sheet you absolutely want to make sure we spend a lot of time with companies like yours with our paralegals as well to make sure that the, the, somebody's home where they're living is bucked up properly, painted yeah. properly, matched it, yeah, that sort of thing. And that they should have an expectation of what that's going to be involved in that. Uh... Reconstruction is not pretty until paint goes on the wall. Uh, <laughs> it's just a very daunting thing for homeowners to see, especially if they're not familiar with construction. You know, sometimes in, in these DTs, they do have some invasive cuts in, in, in interiors. And uh, the better the communication, always will And the more sensitive, favor. I think, to the environment that you're going into. For sure. Homes, for sure. Right. Yeah, so, so COVID's been interesting in this regard. I mean, we would go to great lengths to try to communicate what we were doing, who was doing it, when it would happen, what the process looked like relative to DT or reconstruction. And it was hard to get member engagement. Right? It was another meeting they had to go to after work at 7 o'clock in the clubhouse. They just don't want to show up. COVID uh, has actually provided this one advantage. We can do these things by Zoom right. or other online meetings. And people seem more inclined to join these meetings because they can do it from their living room, right? And they don't have to go to another meeting in the evening. So we've been able to communicate a lot of this uh, more effectively, in my opinion, during COVID to the members uh, in terms of the process and what to expect. We had this recently with a client with a very large construction defect um, case, and the issues are quite complicated. There were some insurance mistakes made by the developer, and so the number of parties had to be increased, and the members were quite rightly frustrated. Uh, with uh, the delay, and so we asked, as we sometimes do, the special master mediator to address the community. And in the Zoom environment, he was very—it was very easy to get him to do that and to do it, and we had a great turnout. I think members really came away from that meeting with a much better understanding, you know, from a quote neutral person uh, about what the case was about. And I do think it's important to treat members like adults and to give them the straight stuff on where we are in the case and you know what the big challenges are and what we can expect at the end of the day. Well it solves so many problems when you do communicate with them consistently um, because now let's fast forward to they've completed litigation and they're getting ready to engage in the actual repairs for the property. So Steve, how did the board's interaction translate to a successful management of the project afterward? You know, it's so interesting. If we divide the process into two pieces, the first part is getting them the money. And for the most part, it's the lawyers that are doing that. Mm -hmm. right? They're working with the experts. They're managing the claim, developing the evidence, working on the insurance pieces and that. But once the money is obtained, now the decisions are really made by the board. Do they want to stick with the construction experts they need during the litigation? Do they want to go out to bid? Are they going to hire a construction manager? Hopefully, yes. Are they going to bring in a project manager as well? Is that something they're going to use through their management company? Are they going to bring an outside person who's going to manage the, the bidding process? How are we going to knock on doors to make repairs? So that's really, I think, where the board needs to roll up its sleeves for our part, um, we say this when we're interviewing clients or when we're interviewing people that, that our goal is to get repairs done. The money is just a means you know, to an end, you know, to achieve that. And so we have a whole team of lawyers who we're 
then we drill down on the construction contracts after it's part of the work that we do for a lot of large pharmaceuticals. And the GC side really helps with that. I know that it's really beneficial if the board that went through the marination of the litigation is the same board when the construction begins because they really understand. Right. And they're very good at helping prioritize. They're very good at um, understanding the value of using maybe the experts that were already on the case. If not, they at least understand what they want to change. One thing I want to ask you guys, and because we do see it sometimes throughout uh, our projects, what do you guys do when you start to feel that now the board has received their money and you're starting to feel like they're not going to do the repairs? Worried. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah worried. It, it does happen. I'm sure you guys see it where you start to see tones change about maybe we could push this. I think we save the money. Well, the important thing is we need to have a plan. And the civil code requires that they, Correct. at the conclusion of the case, tell the vendors you know, what they, what the claim was for and when and if they're going to make repairs. And there are some repairs they can defer, and then there are some that they need to make right away. And in my experience, and Chapman may have a different one, but I haven't seen boards not promptly, quote unquote, address the things they really need to. Right. You know, leaks, structural. Sometimes the other stuff they do fold in, like painting they may defer, right? Right. cracks in the sidewalks that aren't trip hazards, they may defer that for their reserve study. Right, life safety, water intrusion, always make the cut, aesthetics, sometimes, right. But they never want to completely forget cosmetic repairs because it keeps the property value up and it also helps when um, people are finished with the project. They want it to look nice. They want to feel like they got something out of it. Yeah, I agree. I only had one circumstance where I thought the board didn't totally understand their obligation to make the repairs that, that were required. Yeah. Oh, I've seen more than one. Yeah. <laughs> In my circumstance, we, we collected quite a lot of money, you know, millions of dollars. And I got a call a month or two later, and they wanted to know if they could build a pool house. That's how they wanted to spend <laughs> What did you say? Uh, I said we could have a meeting. Fortunately, in that circumstance, there was a very good community manager. Uh, you know, I went to the meeting. No nonsense, very direct conversation no. with the board <laughs> about kind of the way that we uh, understood that they shouldn't be equipment repairs, and we all got aligned. And, and needless to say, the pool house was not built. But ultimately, the call is the client. Yes, I mean, just like your company, uh, like our firm, you know, we can give them our best advice and the experience, you know, that we've seen with other clients in similar situations over the years. And, you know, the claim is short-term pain for long-term gain. Yeah. It really is. So helping them along that path is you know, obviously important. And I haven't seen a lot of clients not make the repairs they need to make. Yeah, I agree. I think most boards take their obligation seriously. They understand that it's their job to ensure that the property values remain intact and continue to increase over time. And uh, they're concerned about that not only for themselves but for their neighbors. And then most boards, not even that kind of behind we have held offices all over the state of California and Nevada, and so I've really seen a lot of different markets, so to speak, with different cultures, different impacts from those cultures, and I think in the Bay Area in general, we have a very big melting pot of culture, and so it, it's always really interesting to me to, to stress to the 
towards the communication because they have so many diverse personalities and cultures involved. Do you find that as well, that it's uh, even more important to keep that communication line open? Well, until, what was it, a year ago, um, a community would need to obtain membership approval in the voting process to initiate uh, construction defect to seek a claim. And the level of communication was quite high. We received many, many meetings, many letters addressing the concerns that Chad mentioned earlier. You know, um, our reserves are going to look bad. Will there be a stigma in the project and that? And so the demographic was really important because you needed to not just communicate, but to pull people in so that they would have enough information to cast the vote. Um, and I think, and we saw that everywhere throughout the state in the three markets that were in San Diego and LA and Orange County and our community through there as well. Um, now it's a little bit different because now we don't need, because of the law, we don't need the membership approval. So the communication is more out than in, coming back into us. And so the different approaches people take to things is a little bit different and easier, I would say. Less stress and assistance. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, this is a two-part series on construction defect. So uh, the name of the podcast is HOA It's a True Story. This is the end of our first part series. So Steve, why don't you tell us your favorite HOA story? Well, I know your audience can't see you smiling right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm suspecting that you think I'm going to tell a happy story. But uh, actually, one of the most meaningful stories to me involved a community oh, 20 miles from where we're sitting right now. And um, after the 10-year statute of limitations expired, and that 10-year, that's the outside right nowadays. There are much shorter ones, but the 10-year is the absolute outside. Uh, they came to me and they said we have these major structural problems, which they had, and um, we, you know, we'd like to pursue a claim. And I did the work and I said, "Gee, um, you know, it looks like the statute of limitations has expired." And they asked us to do more research, and we, it was pretty obvious we reached the same conclusion. And they said, "Well, now what are we going to do?" And we said, "Well, you, you've got to make these repairs." And um, it ended up being a very, very high special assessment rating, and about 25% of the homeowners couldn't afford it lost their homes to foreclosure. Wow. And I think it's really sad. I I have to say, I think that uh, looking at the notes, I think that the directors on the board, before the 10 years ran, knew. They sold their units and and fled. Sure. uh, They did not want to deal with the problem, and that was a real tragedy. I know it's a big decision for people to pull the trigger on evaluating issues and initiating a CD claim, but it can be really life-changing for people. And yeah. that was the first time I'd ever experienced that, sadly to say. Well, all the more reason why laws are changing, and we're having requirements to go look at things on our own time and time, right? True that, yes, that's right. Well, thank you for joining us, and come back next week to get part two of construction defect litigation with Steve Weil and Chad Thomas of Birdie and Wild Law. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.